0: Living your story right now in this moment. You know, no two stories are alike. We are all unique. We all have a different lens through which we see the world. We all have something to contribute, to share, to be. That uniqueness takes courage. It's not easy to stand in your truth. It's not easy to let yourself be vulnerable, to be really seen. To be really heard. So many of us hide. So many of us stay hidden. So many of us make the choice to step forward. To own who we are. To own our stories. To share our voice. The tide is turning. We're moving into a space of deeper vulnerability, courage, authenticity, and love. We're moving closer to greater self-love, self-acceptance, honesty, and empowerment. To get there, to get to that space, means we have to authentically share who we are. It means we have to authentically show up as our true selves. The magic is in sharing who you are. The magic is in sharing your story. That's where this series comes in. Own your voice. Love yourself. Stay true to your story. Dive deep into your vulnerability. Shine in your authenticity. Once you do, there's no stopping you. Stay honest. Stay brave. Stay true to who you are. Welcome to Seek the Joy Podcast, the power of storytelling. Storytelling.
1: Amy Ostreicher, and according to doctors, I'm a surgical disaster. At 18 years old, I thought I had my life pretty figured out. I was going to go to college, then Broadway, then change the world. That April, we had our big annual Passover Seder, and I started to get a stomach ache, and it didn't go away. So my dad decided to take me for an x-ray just in case it wasn't the matzah. And that's the last thing. I remember. My stomach actually exploded from a blood clot, literally hitting the ceiling of the operating room. Both my lungs collapsed and I almost died. When I woke up from a coma months later, doctors told me that I had no stomach anymore. I couldn't eat or drink and they didn't know when or if I'd ever be able to again. What do you say to that? I was devastated, but mostly confused, like I had woken up in someone else's life. I even remember Googling, how do I find myself? And where did I find myself? Eight months later, I was finally discharged from the hospital. So I had this fantasy that on the day I was finally discharged from the hospital, I'd be all dressed up, have no medical bags attached to me, skip out the door, grab a burger on my way out, and waltz back into my old life. Except my waltz partner was my IV pole, and burgers don't go down so well without a digestive system. My parents felt like we needed a new beginning after this, so they surprised me with a new house. The house was bare. No memories of my old life, like my life before the coma had never existed. Buying a house, was it for me or them? Who was I now and what was this body covered in adhesive, plugged into machines, leaking out of openings I didn't even know I had? The only good part about an empty house was an empty fridge. Thank God there was no food in the house. Until a family friend came over and brought us a dozen bagels, some whitefish salad, and a schmear. And I just remember standing over the counter picking the poppy seeds off of a bagel. Carving out its doughy insides with my fingernails and making that crust feel as hollow as I felt inside. And after I had mutilated this poor mound of dough, this evil thing that threatened to kill me if I even attempted to eat it, I didn't know what to do with myself. I was hungry for a purpose and food. I wanted spiritual fulfillment to, to find God again, but I give them up in a heartbeat for a hunk of steak. Instead, I had what my dad called my nightly pina colada cocktail, which was actually a three liter bag of milky white ivy vein food that I'd have to carry around in a purse for 16 hours a day in addition to a feeding tube in a backpack. My parents were heartbroken that I couldn't eat, so they rid the house of all food. My dad would actually come home from work and hide in the garage eating his eggplant Parmesan. But my sense of smell at that time was superhuman, so I was definitely on to him. I missed having contact with food. What people don't understand is that seeing food, smelling it, even playing with it, gave me some kind of vicarious satisfaction in the hospital. All the kids who couldn't eat were always the ones who wanted to play in the toy kitchen. We're obsessed with what we can't have. So I was going crazy with no food in the house. I mean, Even if I can't eat it, can I at least hold a potato or smell it orange? Not being able to eat was difficult. But not being able to drink, especially in the heat of summer, was just torture. After a full year of not even an ice cube, I was finally allowed to drink clear liquids. Heaven! Two ounces of water the first week, then four, then six. I couldn't wait to take my very first sip of water with the tiniest straw I could find. I took a sip, and then I remembered that water didn't taste like anything. (laughs) Then I started to have a little fun with fluids. Since I didn't have a working digestive system yet, The surgeons actually created an opening in my neck, so anything I drank went through the opening and into a little bag. I would try to drink different colored juices based on what I was wearing so my bag would match my outfit. (laughs) For Halloween, I drank cherry red Kool-Aid, and then I took the bag off, and as the red liquid spewed from my neck, I said, Do not be afraid! I'm a vampire! Ah!" I think I was the only one that got a kick out of that. All this time, I was unable to eat a thing. Day after day, week after week, month after month, I waited patiently. It wasn't until two years after that that I was finally allowed to eat, thanks to a 19-hour surgery and three shifts of nurses and doctors. As I was recovering, every other person came up to me and said, oh, hey, I worked on you. I worked on you, too. I'm a celebrity. But healing was not a straight path. Wounds opened, stitches burst loose, and I learned that no surgery is a guarantee. 27 surgeries later. My parents have this tradition that whenever I'm discharged from a surgery at the hospital, we go to the nearest mall to celebrate. It started as their way of getting my mind off of food when I couldn't eat. So one of these times we go to Costco, and we're stocking up on the 50 packs of toilet paper and 30-gallon boxes of hefty garbage bags or 60,000 gallons of garbage bags when all of a sudden, I feel this eruption in my stomach. I look down, and I see this stream of fluid spewing out of me. This is fun for you to do, right? Surrounding me in a pool of... So... I put my bargain books down, I look at my mother, I look at my father, and then we just get the hell out of there. So I'd like to offer my personal apologies to Herb, the employee that was called to clean up on aisle six. Um, I would like to dedicate the rest of this oleo to Herb. So Costco was not the only havoc we were causing, every time I had a setback, we were put back in the hospital. And my parents slept in the ICU with me every night, so they were feeling a little cooped up too. We had to get out, so we decided one day to make a break for it and go shopping. The time was 3.35 p.m. on a Tuesday. The doctors had rounded, the nurses were filling their meds, the coast was finally clear to bust out of this joint. We plotted our escape in the mess hall. Dad would keep a lookout while Mom and I headed towards the service elevators, down to the lobby, out the back entrance, onto 166 and Broadway, and we'd be free men. I was having a great time. I was finally free of my IV pole for an hour. I was dancing in the middle of the street singing, I got no IVs to hold me down. (laughs) I didn't understand why everyone was staring at me until my mom reminded me that I was still in my hospital gown. I didn't care. I raced down the street, turned a corner, and found myself face to face with Juanita, the social worker. (laughs) Someone must have tipped her off. We were kindly escorted back, and at Nurse's Report that night, there was a little announcement. (laughs) "Mamie Ostreicher, blood draw, bandage change, and please make sure that she and her family stay on the unit, You're not my mother. You can't give me a curfew. I know as an ICU patient, I just can't go traipsing about New York. But I was also a stir-crazy teenager. The doctors seemed to just expect me to be happy that I was alive. But I wanted a timetable for how long it would take to get my real life back again. People are telling me I'll eventually be put back together soon and eventually I'll be able to eat and drink soon enough. Before you know it, time, patience. Not today, but but what about today? What about tomorrow and the day after tomorrow? I am never getting to college. All I wanted to do was act. I studied, found the best teachers. Idiot! I'm sick of being a patient, a science experiment. People call me a miracle. Really? What kind of miracle? People look at me like I'm a freak in a sideshow. Oh, poor Amy. And I'm supposed to put on a smile so they don't feel bad. Well, I'm so glad they don't feel bad. It makes everything so much better. I'm 28 and everyone treats me like a a child. I can take care of myself. If I fall, I'll get up. Don't help me. Nobody has any answers, not even the doctors. I thought my parents knew everything. They can't even help me. This sucks. I wish I could, I wish, I wish I was. Then I found a quote. Everything will be okay in the end. And if it's not okay, it's not the end. If it's not okay, it's not the end. I could write the ending to my own story. And so I did. I wrote a musical and I called it Gutless and Grateful. I had never spoken about what had happened to me ever before, and now I was just singing it to total strangers and New York theater critics. As fearless as this may have seemed, telling my story made me feel normal. I no longer felt like this outcast forever exiled from the world I knew as a teenager. I had made the triumphant comeback, and this was my story. So after a big milestone like that, you know, some people might uh, go to the bar for a drink. Someone else might bake a cake. Someone might post it on Facebook. Not me. I decided to get another surgery. It was an elective surgery that was supposed to make me normal, which was weird because I was never really normal before. I knew this was a risky surgery, but it was supposed to clear up some leftover kinks that I had. So there I am lying in the gurney of the operating room when the surgeon bends over and he whispers in my ear, so are you sure you really want to do this? So with my last ounce of strength, I lifted up my head and I said, I just did a one-woman show. I could do anything. (laughs) Apparently not everything. Three extra surgeries, two catheters, and a few more months at Mount Sinai later, I woke up with more problems than I came in with. So now here I was, set even further back with even more medical complications. I was frustrated, angry, I felt guilty. I felt like I had messed everything up. They say that everything happens for a reason, but that's not always true. Sometimes you have to make it happen. I still think of my old life sometimes and I miss it. I miss the simplicity. I look back at old photographs and I see the joy and innocence that was in my eyes. I know I can't be 13 again. I can only be the best 28 I can, but sometimes I do wonder what my life would have been like if this had never happened. This is not the life I plan for myself, but does anyone's life ever work out exactly how they plan it? I was led astray and hurt, taken apart and put back together, but differently. But my passion never went away. I kept my hunger alive. And now I know that my role in life is to still be that same performer I always wanted to be when I was 13. But now with an even greater gift to give, a story to tell. Thank you.
2: I'm Dr. Gwen Feinstone, I'm the author of Finding the Gems, The Search for Meaning in Life's Traumas and Losses, and I'm a university president. The university is California Southern University located in Costa Mesa, California. And my full-time job is as a president, it's 24-7, and that's how I spend my time. I got started as a kid. I have always loved writing. From the time I first learned to write and put words on paper, I knew I needed to express myself. And I have always written, I have always journaled. And it was a hop and a skip from journaling to writing articles to doing um, a book. Segwaying into being a president, that was more of a career opportunity that presented itself. And I was able to bring many, many years, uh, something like three decades of experience running nonprofits to what I could do here for the university. And um, I can't say which one I like more. They're both very, very satisfying. I have three advanced degrees in the field of psychology, a master's of science in counseling psychology with a specialization in loss issues and bereavement, a master of arts in psychology with an emphasis in marital and family therapy, and a doctorate in pastoral ministry with a specialization in interfaith chaplaincy. And all of those have come to good use in my career as a therapist in private practice and many, many years as a therapist and a chaplain working in hospice, helping people with terminal illness to die with dignity and their families to survive the losses. So all of that comes together in the form of the book as well because the book covers loss issues of all sorts. We always tend to think of death as being the loss issue. It might be the biggest one in most people's lives, but divorce is a loss issue. Trauma is a loss issue. Certainly separations in families are loss issues. And then all of that comes to play here in my role as a university president because I have a deep understanding of people and have created programs to help motivate them, help them grow, and as I grow each person, I grow the university. I was inspired to do this work, to write a book, because I'm a book lover. I credit books with saving my life. The library was the place I went to. It was my safe haven. And to be able to write a book that could help others was my motivation. Many people will not go into therapy, not on a dare, not if you pay them. There are those who've had bad experiences with therapy. There are those who just are afraid of it or don't see a value in sharing that part of themselves with a professional. There are a lot of reasons why people won't go into therapy. I can't reach those people, but maybe they'll buy a book. They'll read a book and they'll do something to change their lives for the better. So I wrote the book to reach a broader population, to reach that population that won't step foot in therapy, or perhaps had a bad experience and this is their opportunity now to make things better for themselves. Uh, My passion is potential, always has been. I was motivated to go into psychology because I liked helping people find their potential. It's been my calling. I sought my own potential as a kid. Uh, As a kid, I helped other people find their potential as an adult. Psychology was the place to do that. Oftentimes you ask people why they go into the field of psychology and they'll say, I want to help people, to which I say, become clergy, become a social worker. For me, it has been to help people find their potential, because if I can help you get past all that clutter, all that emotional stuff that's in the way, all the pain, all those walls that are between you and your real self. You can find your potential and make it happen. And your life can be amazing. For me, in order to feel joy in life, I have to be of service. I need to fix things. I need to help. I need to prepare others to reach their potential, help them manifest who they are. So for me to feel joy in life, To feel that I'm here for a reason and to have a sense of purpose around it. That is what I need to do every day, whether it's for employees, patients, or the clerk at the store who's in a bad mood or looks like this is not where she wants to be that day. I feed myself other ways. I feed myself through watching sunsets and all those other examples, um, Victorian teas and fun things like that, uh, spending time with women friends. gives me great satisfaction to see an employee go from one position to the next or to see a patient move from one problem to success. They're sure they would never find love and now they have it. Another source of joy for me has been love. I've been very blessed to be loved by three incredible men and I don't take that for granted. I was born with intention. I know that. My soul spoke to me as a young child. I had the intention from the beginning. I knew that I had to manifest my own potential, and my purpose in being here was helping others to do the same. So the intention in every day is make a difference. It's just that simple. I don't think I need tools and resources to stay mindful and and grounded. Um, For me, it's more a matter of commitment to Why I was put here in the first place. What I do struggle with, and perhaps this is an answer that helps others, is sometimes I'm too much with the world. From time to time, the world gets too ugly, it gets too serious, there's too much harshness, and I need to separate. And I just go to a quiet space, maybe it's a dark, quiet room, maybe it's sitting out and having tea with a friend, but I will oftentimes just need a little space for me, pull my little broken pieces back together again. And then I go back out in the world and do what I was sent here to do and make a difference, and I'm ready. It's like, okay, bring it on. I'm ready for you. I dream of a world in which children can grow up in their own homes in safety. But until then, I'll have to be content with being someone who can make a difference in the lives of others, helping them to find their potential and manifest it and have the lives that they want to have. This book afforded me the opportunity to learn something very important about myself. And it wasn't in the writing of the book. It was actually in the promoting of the book. Writing the book, I was filled with passion and and the vigor of putting my words on paper and trying to do it in such a way that would be accessible to others. The promoting of the book brought up something else entirely. What the promoting of the book brought up was a loss of anonymity. I was going to have to go out into the world and tell my story. But more importantly, I would need to tell my story or my story would be known to everyone in this university and all my peers and colleagues. And in that moment, I realized I felt a reticence, a kind of an embarrassment. And I had to look at that because I'm not just a therapist to others, I must be my own best therapist if I'm truly going to help them. So I looked at that and realized that it wasn't embarrassment I felt, that was just what was masking a bit of shame. There was still shame. At 64, there was still shame. After all the therapy, after all the years of hard work, there was still some shame. I was still owning that experience. I was still taking responsibility for someone else's bad bad behavior and that was a stunner that I still owned this much shame not like when I was a kid this much shame that was a stunner and for me that was a very growthful moment to be able to say yes I will do this interview and anyone who reads the book will know what they know and you know what I'm a thriver my younger self would look at me and say, you fulfilled your expectations. And I know that because I was about 51 or 52 when my younger self spoke to me very loudly one day. I was at my office at a private practice. I just had a quiet moment when I walked around and I was enjoying my office and everything that was in it and having a moment of appreciation and saying, looking at my furniturings, all of that. And I had this successful practice. I had a good marriage with a man I respected and admired and loved. I had a solid Jewish life. I was just, it could not be better. It was perfect. If not perfect, at least really great. And in that moment, I realized I'd made it. Now the flashback on that to really appreciate the moment is I was about 10 years old when someone asked me, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, a philanthropist. But I also had another experience at 10 that was um, eye-opening for me. I was just walking down the street, and there was a ring in this jeweler's window. And I thought it was the most exquisite ring I had ever seen. And I said to myself, I will have that one day. Now, mind you, I didn't have two nickels to rub together. I didn't have one nickel. came out of abject poverty, spiritual poverty, intellectual poverty, economic poverty, you name it. We had all the poverty's covered. I didn't have a nickel to my name, but to look in that window and see that ring, I said, I'm gonna have that one day. I'm gonna get that ring. And fast forward, I'm 51, 52 years old. Life is perfect and I realized, oh my God, I made it. I got here. So I went shopping and I bought myself a four carat diamond marquee cut stone if that was the ring I saw. This is my, I made it ring. So I know for a fact what my little girl would say if she could see me. She'd go, that's one hell of a ring. That's what she'd say.
0: Our next story comes from Michaela Cooper. My story started when I was 17 years old. My son's father, my first love, had cheated on me. I was so distraught. I hated myself and I started to look for love and validation in a man, instead of first loving myself. A year after I was cheated on, I found a man who was very charming. He promised me a lot of things. He promised that things would be different, that he would never hurt me and that he would love me forever and I believed it. At the beginning of our relationship, things were amazing, but then I started to notice him drinking more and more, and soon it became heavily. That was the first red flag, and I had ignored it. As the heavy drinking continued, he began to call me names and tell me I was fat, I was worthless, that I would never amount to anything, and that no one else would love me. Sadly enough, I believed it. Every day I woke up, I never knew which way he would be. Would he be the nice, charming guy that I fell in love with, or would he be the drunken, verbally abusive monster? At this point, I felt like I was trying to convince myself that it wasn't that bad. I would tell myself things like, well, he's drunk and angry, and he doesn't mean it. Or sometimes I would say to myself, well, it's not physical, so really it's not that bad. I guess by convincing myself of these things, I was able to get through really hard days, and soon the drunken verbal abuse did turn physical. The tip of the iceberg was when one evening I was going to go hang out with friends. I told him that I was getting ready to leave, and he told me that, you're going nowhere. I proceeded to walk towards our front door when he put his hands around my neck and choked me out. All I remember is, Waking up 15 minutes later, dazed and confused, he was nowhere in sight, so I proceeded to call 911. By the time the police had arrived on scene, he was long gone, but they did end up catching him about 30 minutes later, and he was arrested. I was hospitalized for three days, sad, confused, lost. I was in New York, away from my family. I didn't know where I was going to go, and my worst fear was that I would be released to the streets because there was no room in the domestic violence shelters. And that's exactly what happened. I was released to the streets in the middle of winter. My worst nightmare had come true. Not only did I feel I was fighting my perpetrator, I felt like... I was fighting the system as well. I was sleeping on park benches in the middle of winter in the freezing cold. I felt like giving up. I felt like giving up on life. I felt like I was worthless and that the world had just thrown me out like yesterday's trash. I was so cold I didn't know when I would be able to get food. I went on throughout the winter and the summer sleeping outside for about a year. And then, a year later, a bed opened up at the domestic violence shelter. I felt the system had failed me. After being in a shelter for six months, I finally regained my independence and found an apartment. I still wasn't healed and continued to feel awful about myself. Fast forward years later, I got married to a wonderful man who I'm currently married to. I have rebuilt myself and... I was inspired to start the Butterfly Effect Project. I help women all over the world. I will also be part of the domestic violence rally in Washington, D.C. on October 1st. I have learned from sharing my truth and my story that you can inspire others and also help by healing yourself too. My biggest dream is to bring as much awareness to domestic violence as possible and to help as many people as I can. I want to start a nonprofit organization and build a safe house for victims and families of domestic violence, too. This is Seek the Joy Podcast, the power of storytelling. Join us, share your story. For more information and to get involved, visit seekthejoypodcast.com. This series airs the third week of every month, and make sure to join us for Seek the Joy Tuesday. Until then, thank you for your honesty. Thank you for your bravery. Thank you for your joy. Thank you for being here, and thank you for listening.